Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. What's the difference between God and a director of photography? What? God doesn't think he's a director of photography. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. You just got a Hollywood joke from Steve Smith. That'll break the ice. Later, we will hear about the Technical Achievement Academy Award he won this year. Ooh. Smith got a certificate for his work, but not an Oscar statuette, making him just the guy to kick off our first ever Notskers show. That's right, in which we honor everything that isn't getting an Oscar this weekend. Yay. So in a few minutes, we'll talk with Maya Taylor, the breakout star of the film Tangerine. Mm. New York Times film critic A.O. Scott lists his favorite Academy-ignored films. And composer Junkie XL, one of the few people who didn't get nominated for his work on Mad Max Fury Road, it's a crime. talks film scores. Plus, our award for best airline safety video. <laughs> but first, we need to address the elephant in the room. In 2016, you cannot talk about stuff that didn't get nominated for an Oscar without at least mentioning Oscars So White. That is how the social media sphere described this year's Oscar nominees, which conspicuously did not include several films by and about people of color, which some figured should have been shoe-ins for a nomination or two. Here to talk a tiny bit about that and then much more about other stuff are Tracy Clayton Hi. and Heaven Nagatu. What up? They host the super popular podcast Another Round. In which you, what, what do you guys talk about on Another Round for people who haven't heard it? Literally oh my everything. God. Who hasn't heard it? <laughs> what? <laughs> do they not like joy? Do not like fun? Okay. From the three people in Idaho who haven't heard it, uh-huh. what do you talk about? Yes. Race, class, gender, pop culture. Animals. Mm, music. I Tracy talk a really lot likes. about animals. <laughs> you talk a lot about animals. And you also have drinks when oh, you're yeah, doing yeah. it sometimes. Hence, All the time. another round. Unfortunately, we don't have any drinks to offer you here well. because public media can't yeah. do it. Can't afford it, for one thing. But welcome <laughs> anyway. So we, we, Thank you. we called to ask you if there was anything that hadn't already been said about the Oscar So White thing. And basically your response was, no, not really. It's all been discussed. Yeah. (laughs) I just feel like we have the same conversation every year. And now that there's a catchy hashtag, white people are forced to pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's all it needed all along. It just needed better marketing. I think you actually mentioned that this should be a question directed at white movie executives, not black media people. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed during the Sundance coverage that a lot of people were asking the the people of color at Sundance about Oscar season and all this mm. stuff. It's like, you should ask the white people who are <laughs> yeah. making and funding movies at Sundance. Exactly. Yeah. What's good? <laughs> also, what do you think our response is going to be? Right. Oh, it's not bad. I don't mind being looked over <laughs> for my accomplishments, you know? White people just have better movies. Like, yeah. that's never going to be the answer. All of their stories are the only ones that matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, since there's been so much talk about getting more people of color on screen, we thought we would ask you about representations of people of color that you would like to get off screens. Yeah, we have a, a few hundred. <laughs> yeah, there's so many. We'll only give a few. Let's All keep right. it to three. What What would number one be? <laughs> number one is like the black best friend for me. Yeah. Okay. Because it's such a lazy way to include brown people in your movie so that you don't look racist. Mm. But like this character doesn't have a life for a purpose other than to be the support of the main character who is usually white. Mm. And, and often so if it's a woman, yeah. she's like sassy and like giving her yeah. all this wisdom. Uh-uh, girlfriend. <laughs> the sassy advice giver. Yeah, yes. we right. need to kick him to the curb. <laughs> uh, so also on your list, you said, was the white parent of a mixed race child who has no idea what to do with her hair. 
Yeah. The child's hair. The movie Black and White, is that what it was called? With Kevin Costner. Black right. or White. Black or White. First yes. of all, yes. what a title. Good I job, know. guys. Can't imagine what this movie is yeah. about. But he's got a little mixed baby girl child, and oh my God, her hair is... It's just it's so unruly. Never, what do I do with it? How do I do? Which is a, a lazy way of being like cultural differences right. are difficult. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But listen, you you nailed it right. The reason is because it is a shorthand way to point out the difficulties of two cultures coming together. Doesn't isn't that what movies do all the time? They're kind of shorthanding things so that you quickly get the idea. But when it comes to race, I mean, hair in particular marks brown people as brown. You know, and that's why like white folks have like this obsession with black hair and like wanting to touch it and stuff. Oh my God, it's so different yeah. for me. So it's tiring to have to live through that and then to see it on the screen. It's too. already a touchy yeah. subject, literally. Yeah. I'll allow it. <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, another trip that we have some qualms with is the entire way that sci-fi and fantasy ignores people of color, even though you can literally make up the universe. You make up your own rules. Completely different rules. But you are like, the creator of this universe. You balk at the idea of like a brown elf. That's true. Right. Why are there no people of color in sci-fi right. or fantasy? No, it's true. I, I was Googling before we came here, black people in sci-fi, mm-hmm. and it's not a very long watch, guys. I, I, I couldn't even short. procrastinate properly. I saw one <laughs> clip from Star Trek. Although this year we had, you know, an example of Star Wars, which very noticeably mm-hmm. opened up its world to a lead hero of color. Yes, and for the better. Mm-hmm. Have y'all seen John Boyega? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Heaven Nagatu and Tracy Clayton check out their podcast Another Round. And now let's hand out our first Notsker. And it goes to actor Maya Taylor debuted this year in a film that isn't the kind of thing we typically see on screens. That's right. Maya starred in Tangerine, a transgender buddy film about two women of the night who spend Christmas Eve trekking across Hollywood. Mm. The movie was shot entirely on an iPhone, but the real innovation is the fun and furious look it takes at an overlooked subculture. In this clip, Maya's character Alexandra meets her friend Cindy at a corner donut store. Cindy's just out of prison, and she speaks first. So, I got some good news to tell you. What? I've been keeping a secret about me and Chester. <laughs> Woo! I know what it is. Oh, You're girl. breaking up with him. Thank God. Because, what? honey, for him to be cheating on you like what? that. Wait, 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 wait. What? Um, you, you didn't know? Maya won a Gotham Award for this role, and on her behalf, the film's producers, the Duplass brothers, launched the first-ever Oscar campaign for an openly transgender actor. Alas, no nomination. But she is getting our Notsker. Cold comfort, we know. (laughs) Uh, In real life, Maya was once herself a sex worker in Hollywood. When we spoke, I asked if the real world and the fictional world collided during filming. Oh my God, yes. Like, it would really, really just piss me off. Like, (laughs) some people walk up to me, girl, what you doing? Don't you see the camera rolling and the sound equipment here? Like, move around. Like, don't come over here bothering me. I don't mess with you anyway. You know, you've told the story I, uh, when this movie came out about how this movie came to pass. Basically, you know, you met with the director, Sean Baker, and you met at a jack-in-the-box in Hollywood and talked a couple times a week, and you shared stories from your life that he drew from to make this movie. Is there one scene in particular in the movie that kind of came directly from your experience? Yeah, yeah. Like, I was walking down the street one day, and Mm -hmm. I saw one of the girls on the streets working. And somebody came by and threw a bottle of piss out from their car at her. 
and it landed all over her. And that was that was very sad, actually. At the end of the movie, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it, a scene like that happens. Uh, and then there's this incredibly moving moment where you are cleaning the wig of your friend uh, in the film. <laughs> <laughs> and and you take off your wig and, and it's just this quiet, intimate moment. And I'm wondering, when you were filming that, do you remember what it felt like? It felt like I was taking off my wig and giving it to somebody else. <laughs> no, because like I had to have my hair braided because I have a lot of hair, like real hair. Mm-hmm. And so I was fine with it because I was like, oh, it's okay. I got hair up under here, so I don't care. Yeah, but that, it was very sweet. I mean, it's not something that I wanted to do. But then I said, you know what? You never know what, what could come of this movie. So mm. I'm going to do what I'm told and um, do this scene because it's obviously going to be a big touching scene. Yeah. Now, in real life, I don't think that I would be taking off my wig to give it to anybody <laughs> because that's my wig. That belongs on my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not going to ask you for your wig. <laughs> this movie is, it was one of my favorites of last year for a lot of reasons, but it also, I think, attracted attention because it arrives at this specific cultural moment where, you know, society seems to be talking about the transgender community in general. There's an uptick in fiction and nonfiction stories about the transgender community. And I'm wondering what you make of, of this kind of uh, attention. Well, it's nice to see the diversity on TV now. Trans talent is being hired and also... You know, people are discovering, you know, the transgender people exist. and um, But there's still a lot of work to do, you know. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. So there's been a lot of conversation around this topic, but is there something that you feel isn't brought up enough? Well, um, most of the questions that I'm asked are normally towards Hollywood trans people. Okay. I look at myself and I think I'm very blessed. I look at Caitlin. Um, Mm -hmm. Janet Mock, Laverne Cox, um, T.S. Madison. Mm -hmm. But think about all the other transgender people who suffer day by day, you know, Mm -hmm. doing sex work and everything because they can't get a job or constantly being harassed by different people just because they're transgender and stuff like that or don't have a place to live. Sometimes I feel like in my interviews, we're focused on not the wrong thing, but I think there's a bigger picture to what we need to be focused on. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, there, when in researching for this interview, uh, despite kind of this uh, attention in Hollywood, last year I read there was an uptick uh, in violence, in transgender violence, up, uptick of something like 13%. Unfortunately, you can't change the way everybody thinks. You know, mm. there's always going to be some people who, who just hate somebody just because they're different. I feel like God put me here, for one, to mind my business, To live life the best way I can and be the best person that I can be and love and respect everybody else and honor and worship him. So I wish that other people would just mind their business and respect everybody else for the decisions that they decide to make. All right. We have two standard questions we ask all of our guests. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Can you yes, I'm tired of being asked, so how did you and Sean meet? Or how did this process <laughs> start for the movie? You know, I, when people normally ask me that, I'd be thinking, like, didn't you just read it inside of the magazine? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, our second question is, tell us something we don't know. And this could be something uh, personal about you that you haven't shared in interviews, or it could just be an interesting fact about the world. 
something people don't know about me is, I guess, because I, I live in North Dakota. Um, you could say it's the home of the buffalo. <laughs> okay. Have you seen any the buffalo? buffalo state? Yeah, they're so cute, but they're so big. <laughs> um, and the reason why I live in North Dakota is, for one, I'm in love with the most amazing guy in the whole entire world. I love him so much. And actually, that's where my first date was at, on the buffalo. Aww. He took wow. me to go see the buffalo because I love animals. Okay. And um, I love living here because it's quiet. It's away from my Hollywood life. Yeah. You know, going to an airport and getting recognized is nice and everything. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I just like to, like, live simple. I, I feel like um, a lot of people assume that being transgender is probably easier on the coast, like in a city like L.A. or New York or San Francisco. Have you found that to be the case? No. I mean, where I live in North Dakota, Tangerine didn't make it to North Dakota. Like the theaters here, thank God. But it is on <laughs> Netflix. And I have been spotted at the airports here. Uh-huh. But it's like... People don't know that I'm transgender, you know, by Mm. looking at me. So it's like, I like that. You know, Mm. I can just live a normal life as a woman. It's interesting. So in North Dakota, you can live a normal life as a woman and you can also live a normal life as as a non-actor, right? You're kind of just a civilian. So you have two two layers of anonymity. I always said when I got into this industry, I'd never let it change me. I never get big headed about how much money I'm making or what I'm doing or this or that. I was always going to remain the same person who lived in a normal home, who ate the same food, who still talked to the same people and acted the same way. The same sweet, humble person. I will always remain the same. I would never change. Except for the pet buffalo that you have now. I wish that I had a pet buffalo. (laughs) I don't know where I'd keep it. Actor Maya Taylor, as she said, Tangerine is currently streaming on Netflix. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we've got plenty more Notskers to hand out, including one for Best Vine and for Best In-Flight Safety Video, when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I am Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano, and you're joining us in the midst of our special Notskers episode, Woo-hoo. in which we honor stuff that isn't being honored at the Oscars this week. In a few minutes, New York Times critic A.O. Scott lists his favorite non-nominated films. But first, we were wondering, why does anyone care about awards in the first place? That's right. You know? And for answers... We called up a failrist, which, as you probably don't know, is someone who studies awards. Of course. Yes. Jana Gallis holds a PhD in economics from the University of Zurich, and she's a failrist of some renown. Perhaps you've read her paper entitled Awards, Honors, and Ribbons Between Fame and Shame. Mm. No, Rico? Oh, yeah. No. Many times. When I spoke with Jana, I asked... Why do we give out awards? So there are various reasons why people give awards and organizations uh, choose to create awards. One reason is, of course, that you want to establish your own status and um, gain reputation. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, when you're giving an award, you have to be in a position to confer prestige, right? Which means that you have prestige. Another reason that's linked to this is that you want to establish a legacy. So thinking about the Nobel Prizes, for instance, which are really well known, right? Yeah. Alfred Nobel, um, why did he create or establish those prizes? There's one interesting story. I don't know how much of it is true, but that he was known for being the creator of dynamite. 
And that yeah. might not be the legacy that you want to create and establish. So Nobel then decided to give part of his endowment and um, earmark that for the creation of prizes for the greatest benefit to mankind, right? Quite in contrast to um, being the creator of dynamite. So he kind of gave his name a, a new meaning and kind of whitewashed maybe what his dynamite invention has done to the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, after our conversation, Jana, you're going to send the Nobel family's name back into disrepute. So <laughs> ah, thanks for ruining the Nobel Prizes for everyone. But there are, of course, <laughs> also other uh, other reasons why people create and give awards, right? So another reason is that they want to shape a field mm. and influence the direction that a field takes. So if, if you're talking about the Academy Awards and also fields where it's more difficult to really observe quality, mm. um, then by creating an award, you really establish what is considered high quality. Hmm. And you can also channel attention and create role models. Um, then you determine who's invited and who's in the in-group, who's in the out-group. And that's that's basically how you can shape a field, really. It kind of makes people want to make movies that will get Oscars. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly this shaping the field. Hmm. So they are establishing what is considered quality. And then, of course... Um, that influences the production of movies in the future. Mm. If if the award is valuable enough to be something that people seek to achieve, to mm. attain. It can affect where money is put and, and what kind of movies get greenlit for the following year. Uh, yes, yes. So this seems like it speaks directly to one of the critiques of the Oscars this year, which is what's been called hashtag Oscar so white. And mm. I know that you are not a Hollywood person, but looking at this controversy through the lens of award research... What does that tell us or what's the impact of that? Well, I would say for one, with awards, you always also run risks because they are public. The the giver also runs a risk because for one, he or she can award a candidate who is undeserving. That can be because of past performance that the giver wasn't aware of, but also because of future performance. So an example would be um, the Spanish king, for instance. He was the honorary president of the World Wildlife Fund. Well, mm -hmm. then he was caught catching elephants in Botswana and had to be stripped off that honor. So he was clearly not the most deserving candidate for the World Wildlife Fund. Another instance where awards can turn out to be, have negative effects for the givers, of course, if the candidates refuse to accept the award. So an, a very um, well renowned example is, of course, uh, Sartre, who refused to receive the Nobel Prize in Literature. And that reflects negatively on the award giver as well. So there's always some sort of risk involved because it's public. So I, I understand that you received an award for your award research? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that was quite surprising, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, how did you feel when you received it? Good. Very good. Yana Gallus, her award-winning paper about awards is called Awards, Honors, and Ribbons Between Fame and Shame. We've got links to her research at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And our guest today is one of the world's most important film critics, the New York Times' A.O. Scott. This month, he published his book, Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. For this, our first annual Not Oscars show, he thought up an appropriate list. I'm A.O. Scott, a chief film critic at The New York Times. And every year, I look back at all of my favorite movies that were released. And some of them, I think, boy, those should really get an Oscar nomination. 
and some of them do. And then there's another category of movie, which is probably the biggest category, which is movies that I think are just wonderful and terrific that are never, ever, ever going to get the attention of the Academy because the Academy has its own standards, its own criteria that are not the same as mine. So here are my picks, three movies that were never going to get Oscar nominations in the major categories, but that In a Just World should have. Number one is a movie that I think I underestimated a little bit when it came out. It is Spy with Melissa McCarthy, a just amazing comedy. And the Academy is notoriously blind to comedy. Comedy is very rarely in contention for the best picture. And, you know, there's the old saying, comedy is hard. Just what Melissa McCarthy does in going from a mousy desk jockey at the CIA with literal mice in her office into a international woman of mystery and intrigue and an action heroine is so incredible. Like Peter Sellers, like Inspector Clouseau. You know, it, it just it's it's at that level of inventiveness, physical and verbal. And now give me your coat. This is a man's coat. Yeah, but I don't see a man, do I? I see a reject from the sound of music. Give me your coat. No. Yeah. Now, if I won't give this is my coat. I'm going to reach through your body and rip out your back like a werewolf without tearing the jacket, just so I can wear your jacket and give you a final you. Oh, no, you won't. I'm going to take that coat. Absolutely best actress. No, like, there's no question that she was robbed for best actress. And, yeah, why, best picture, too. Why not? Get rid of the Martian, you know? Give it to Spy. My second film is an Israeli film called The Kindergarten Teacher. It's a story about a kindergarten teacher, a woman who discovers that one of her young students, cherubic little five-year-old boy, is a poetic prodigy. The movie is, is on one level a kind of a psychological thriller and a very disturbing one about her growing obsession with this boy and, and her sense that it's her mission to save him from a society that isn't going to care about him. It also works, though, as a, as a critique of that society. Israel, um, in the director's view, has, has abandoned its cultural heritage, its commitment to art, and has become a materialistic and shallow society. The filmmaking was so simple and clear, and it was a very suspenseful movie. I was sort of frustrated because it had a very small release in the United States. It didn't have Juliette Binoche in it. <laughs> so it, it was not even on the radar necessarily of people who go and see movies with subtitles. And yet... It's very entertaining, but also with this theme, why is poetry important? What are the values of a society that kind of push it to the side or don't take it seriously? And how do you counteract that? It's, it's just a very rich movie that I wish more people had seen. You're going to have to get the money, Cam. Well, who is this? It's my grandma. My third and final pick is Grandma, a comedy about a grandmother and her granddaughter, her granddaughter is pregnant. She wants to have an abortion. And it's this very low-key, good-humored... It's not a movie that tries to be about too much. It's just about these characters and their situation. The grandmother is played by Lily Tomlin. And this, this performance, she plays this feminist poet and writer who is a, just a wonderfully cranky, uncompromising woman. I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Excuse me? I'm going to have to ask you to leave. When? When are you going to have to ask us? 
I'm gonna have to ask you to leave now. Oh, you are asking us. Yes, you're disturbing the customers. I'm a customer. I mean, do you know what a customer is? I know what a customer is. Well, a customer is someone who pays for your services, so I am a customer. I mean, what other customers are we disturbing? Oh, them, Ozzy and Harriet? Yes, you are disturbing them. No, we're disturbing you, isn't that right? Yes, you are also disturbing me. I don't know, if that is not a great performance, I don't know what is. And it's a very underplayed, very controlled performance. The Oscars like to award sort of big emotional weeping and fist-pounding moments of acting, and there's none of that in Grandma. It's just such a delight. If I were to give the Oscars advice, first thing I would say is just lighten up. You know, there's a lot of really great movies that are funny. And I don't even want to get started on the foreign language film category, which is such a mess, the sort of the one film per country rule. Just find the movies from all over the world that are most exciting and most original and find a way to give those some prizes. New York Times film critic A.O. Scott, his book Better Living Through Criticism came out this month, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download, American Public Media. All right, and now let's meet the one guy on today's show who actually has been honored this week by the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. That's right. It's Steve Smith, a Canadian who co-created the air wall. Which is not the thin wall through which I can hear my neighbors every time they cough. It is not. Uh, Different thing. No, this is like a giant air mattress, basically, standing on one edge, which can be inflated easily on a movie set and used as a green screen. So actors act in front of it, and later special effects can be superimposed onto the screen. And he got an Academy Award for this. That's right. Specifically, one of the scientific and technical awards, which are given out before the main Oscar ceremony and are barely mentioned on the telecast, of course. So on this Notsker show, we thought we'd give Steve his due. I first asked what he does in the film biz. Well, I've uh, been in the film industry now for about 40 years, working as a key grip. Which is what, for those who don't know? A key grip is a uh, film technician. Uh, we work with the lighting and the movement of the camera. They're considered, they're kind of the unsung heroes of a set. These are like the tough guys that are moving heavy things around. Yeah. Did you expect ever to win an Oscar? No. <laughs> Never. What was the path that led you to create something that now is, you know, Oscar worthy? Well, to diffuse the light over the actors, one of the things that uh, key grips do is we put up uh, large overhead frames. They're like sails in the wind. 4,000 square feet of sail, basically, and uh, they're quite dangerous. They can stand up to a certain amount of wind, but if it's a big storm, they can blow over. So we were trying to figure out a way to make it easier on set and not be worried all day long about, is something bad going to happen if the wind comes up? So we came up with this inflatable overhead, which then led us to say, hey, maybe we could make this as a wall as well. Because another thing that we do is we put up large outdoor green screens. Right, which is, I understand it, before you invented this inflatable wall, these had to be these giant wooden walls that you would erect on the set, basically. Well, yeah. For a movie I worked on called 42, we had a 1,400-foot green screen. Oh, my God. 40 feet tall. We did that with telephone poles. Stuck 187 telephone poles in the ground. Uh, so now you can just blow up basically now, a giant balloon. That's right. I imagine there might be an example of you know a shot that you did that maybe would have been either very difficult or impossible without this thing. Can you give an example? Well, our very first experience on Godzilla, uh, there was a shot uh, where we needed a helicopter to come in 
at a low angle uh, over the top of the wall, and uh, the director was saying, it's not low enough, I need it lower and lower. And so we were able to just deflate our wall, and he was able to get his shot. And with a permanent wall, he couldn't have done that. That's right. <laughs> you can't just, like, shave off 50 That's feet right. off the top of a gigantic wooden structure. That's right. To what extent has that revolutionized shooting? I mean, it's obvious how much time it saves. How much money do you think something like that saves? Well, we, we say it's about a third of the cost, so quite a bit. What movies has it been uh, deployed on, the Airwell? Uh, well, we started on uh, Godzilla, Tomorrowland. From there, we went to Avengers in London, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean in Australia, X-Men Apocalypse. Most of these are not out yet, but... Uh, Can you tell me what the ending of that movie is? Which one? <laughs> X-Men Apocalypse. I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I just I feel like winning an Oscar has changed you, man. Yeah, I know. Um, speaking of which... How did the science and technical Oscars work? Do you apply for the award? Is that how it goes? Yes. Okay. You you do. I had uh, applied when we did our first show, Godzilla, and it was instantly rejected. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, because we had done one show. I see. So it was not really out there that people knew about. Yeah, and you hadn't saved enough people enough money, I think, is how Hollywood I works. Think that's, I think you're right. <laughs> So uh, later, we saved people a lot of money, and uh, the Academy came and uh, said, why don't you reapply? And then uh, I was sitting at my desk and uh, got an email from our partner here in the U.S., uh, Evan Green, and he said, congrats on the award. And I had no idea. He had already seen it in Variety, which in Vancouver, we don't really get the Variety. So that's how I found out. So the Science and Technical Awards, let's be honest, they don't get much airtime on the actual Oscar telecast. They'll show maybe three seconds of an award winner's speech. So are you maybe designing your speech such that they <laughs> have to show bite? it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a good idea. I just don't know what I would say. I don't know either. But yeah. it should be like a short sound. Like if you were going to describe this invention in three words, what would you use, I guess? Uh, giant bouncy castle. <laughs> Steve Smith, you may spot a few seconds of him on the Oscars broadcast, accepting his Academy Award for co-creating The Airwall. And folks, speaking of brevity, we wanted to give one quick award of our own before we take a break. Yes, very quick. Yeah. Many Oscar-nominated films are two or three hours long, so we're giving a Notsker to Vine of the Year. That's six seconds of glorious video. Ah, yes. And it goes to a clip of a shopping cart filled with hundreds of rubber noise-making toy ducks. <laughs> Picture this. We see someone's hand pressed down on the duck pile creating this sound. It is hilarious and terrifying. Ducks will be wheezing through my nightmares. Already are. That six-second Vine video entitled Duck Army was originally shot <laughs> by a Norwegian named Kevin Sinus. Here's Kevin's six-second Notsker acceptance speech. The whole reason I made this video was to embarrass my girlfriend with a lot of noise, so I thank her for this award. Bravo, sir. All right, coming up, the Notsker for Best In-Flight Safety video, and we'll hear a party soundtrack from the composer of Mad Max Fury Road. Fasten your seatbelts when the dinner party download continues.
Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. We're in the midst of our special Notskers episode in which we celebrate everything the Oscars aren't celebrating. Mm-hmm. In a moment, we hear from non-nominated film composer Junkie XL. But first, let's honor one of the most watched forms of visual media in the world. Yes, airplane pre-flight safety videos were viewed by some 600 million people last year. Yet they don't have an Oscar category. That's insane. It's criminal, especially since over the last few years, the genre has undergone a renaissance. Airlines now compete to make their safety videos actually entertaining when they try to. And the company that started this arms race is Virgin America. Their latest video was directed by John Chu, whose big screen credits include G.I. Joe Retaliation and Justin Bieber, Never Say Never, one of your favorites, Rico. Yep. I first asked John (laughs) if safety videos should receive Oscars. <laughs> um, well, it may be the only award I ever win. So yes, of course. Uh, no, we. I mean, the, the whole reason I did it was because uh, people are forced by law to look at your work. Like, what other artist wouldn't love that? That is amazing. I hadn't thought of it like that. They're actually locked in to their seats and cannot turn away. For people who haven't had the pleasure, can you just give the broad overview of what you pulled off here? So the job, obviously, was to make something that people would pay attention to. And Virgin has a long history in music, and they wanted to incorporate that in their new video. They also had to top their old video, which was sort of the flagship video starting sort of the arms race. And that had been playing for five or six years. So this one was supposed to use music, uh, describe the things, get people's attention. And it's a lot of fun and crazy. We have dancers from all walks of life, uh, roboters, uh, crumpers, (laughs) b-boys, ballerinas, you name it. All right. Well, look, here's a clip. And I believe this is about the um, the oxygen mask. Oh, yes. Yo, yo, now that you're bopping your head to the rap scene, now that your eyes are glued to the flat screen, if the cabin pressure's changing, you know that we will be leaving you hanging. Pull your mask. First, don't worry, oxygen flows. Tighten the straps after placing on your mouth and your nose. If you're traveling with someone, like a child, for instance, put your mask on first before you offer assistance. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Trying to write a song with the FAA is a very difficult situation. That's what I was going to ask. You had these restrictions, almost like a like a Petrarchian sonnet. Like you had to follow these rules. Yes. What was that like? Well, we had pages and pages of federal laws that we had to follow and phrases that we had to say. And Todrick Hall, who wrote the song, he can come up with rhymes to anything. And this was sort of uh, a challenge for both of us. Well, do you remember, I know it was a few years back now, but was there something that you wanted to do that the FAA just wouldn't allow. Well, there, yes, uh, things like we were definitely more irreverent. Um, like when she says, if you don't know how to use a seatbelt, in our original version, she says, what the f- is wrong with you? And she literally <laughs> said, and we like bleeped it out, but they didn't want that. Right. The FAA definitely wanted to show how do you get your safety vests on and off and where do you find it? Yeah. And everything was very abstract because we have these Ikea chairs that we retrofitted to look like airplane chairs because we didn't have enough money to rent a plane and Virgin America didn't let us use a plane. That's incredible. This is all shot for people who haven't seen this. It's, it's, it looks like it's in a hangar, yeah. like, a, like an aircraft hangar. But why wouldn't Virgin let you have an airplane? Well, we had a very tight budget. Mm-hmm. And in order to use a plane, it costs money, and we didn't have that money, including the uniforms. Like, we didn't have the money for the uniforms. We had to rent those things from them. But even, like, the the vests, uh, you know, we only got, I think, six 
life vests. And once you pull the cord, they're dead. Oh, my gosh. We could do two takes. And that's really scary when you're shooting a day and a half and trying to get it all yeah, in. Yeah, you have to nail it. Exactly. Yeah. And so we pull it, and one guy's vest doesn't open. And it just so happens in the lyrics, it's like, you know, if it doesn't inflate, you can blow into the tube. So we use that, incorporate, and the shot works perfectly. But that was not planned. So this must be in contrast to like you direct movies like the Justin Bieber uh, movie where the budgets are, are much, much bigger. Yeah. Right. And so your imagination can run wild, but maybe you end up being less resourceful or, or digging deeper because you can just execute the initial vision. Yeah, right before this video, I had just done G.I. Joe Retaliation, which was like a $120 million uh, movie with The Rock and Bruce Willis and Channing. It just, it brings out the real storyteller in you. You really have to come down to what are we trying to say? Yeah. Um, and then how do we bring life to it? How do we bring our own personality to it? I think the fact that there wasn't the pressure of like, oh, but an audience has got to like pay money to see it. I think it just was really freeing. And as a storyteller... It was just a, such a great exercise, uh, even though we had no clue whether anyone was going to watch this in terms of like beyond being forced to in a plane. Well, it was a viral hit on, on YouTube, and now it's it's been there for a couple years. So, I mean, you've you imagine having a movie playing in theaters for three years straight every day. People see, <laughs> with seatbelts have to watch it. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, my mom, whenever she goes on a virgin flight, she like tells people around her because <laughs> she's so excited. And so some people groan because yeah. like, oh, God, not that thing again. But then she gets treated like a queen by everybody. So she loves it. They make announcements on the on the overhead. That is fantastic. Uh, it's 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 pretty nuts. So I think we need to hire. We need to give you a governmental like a government post where you can get people about you know talk, getting them thinking about the environment, about paying their taxes on time, yes, about we, being did, better neighbors. I did this thing with uh, Paul Allen, and he has this thing uh, with Vulcan Pictures where they are trying to teach people about the uh, economy, and so uh, they had 10 different filmmakers do one. Ah. And it's because of this, they had me uh, come on and do one. And it was, it's called uh, Supply and Dance, man. <laughs> I got some safety tips that you gotta know And trust me, it's something that you wanna hear So honey, zip your lips John Chu, winner of our Notsker for Best In-Flight Safety Video. Congrats. His slightly larger screen film, Now You See Me Too, hits theaters later this year. All right, people. And now we get a little meta as we present our Notsker Award for the best awards. That sucking sound you hear is us falling into an audio wormhole. <laughs> That's right. We scoured the world using a tool we call Google mm -hmm. to find the most interesting award ceremony around, and we discovered the Ernie Awards, which a group of women give out annually in Australia in recognition of the most sexist remarks of the year. It's true. According to their website, the ceremony is attended by hundreds of women and, quote, a few brave men. It's genius. Australian politician Dr. Meredith Bergman presides over the ceremony. When she spoke to me from Australia, she told me how it all began. Well, it was actually 23 years ago. In mm -hmm. 1993, a terrible old um, trade union official called Ernie Ecob announced that he was retiring from the trade union movement. And we'd been, the women activists in the unions had been fighting him for a long time. Uh -huh. he, was, he was actually secretary of the shearers union. Like sheep shearers, like wool? 
Sheep shearers, yes. I mean, how Australian can you get? <laughs> Pretty Australian. He'd been famous for saying that women only wanted to become shearers for the sex. And, of course, we kept querying that. What on earth did he mean? Perhaps to have sex with other shearers, with male shearers? <laughs> Who knows what was going on in Ernie Ecobus' mind. <laughs> Amazing. But uh, we had this lunch to celebrate his retirement and at that lunch, I had picked up this trophy of a sheep rampant on a, you know, golden orb or something. <laughs> and we presented it, jokingly really, for the most bestial remark of the year. Uh, I see. And it really caught on from there. And now there are eight categories. And what, are, what are some of the categories? Well, there's media, political, industrial, judicial, sport. And then we've got celebrity and clerical. I understand that there is also a boo-off. Well, the boo-off, it, it didn't start as a boo-off. I, I originally thought we'd do it like the Oscars and I'd just read from an envelope, you know, and the winner is. But yeah. in the second year, the women totally disagreed with the winner that I had chosen and they booed me off. There were <laughs> so, worse worse quotes they felt, more sexist quotes? Th- there were much worse quotes. I think that year the one that really got up their nose was a series of articles in our most prestigious newspaper about why professional women can't get a man. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so no. they thought it should win. So now as I read out each quote... The women boo, and we have highly skilled boo monitors who decide which quote gets the loudest boo. And that's the one that wins, I guess. Yes. Okay. It's, it, instead of you know judging the goodness of something by applause, you are judging the horribleness of something by the boos. Exactly. Let's. You've mentioned a few, but what are some especially notable remarks that have been, I guess, honoured would be the word. In in 2010, I remember putting up visuals for this dinner, and the second one was. Our woman Premier of New South Wales had just been defeated in a big election and the Premier newspaper had a picture of her on the front bench and then it ran a competition. The question was, what do you think of Christina's new hair extensions? (laughs) Oh, my. So that's the sort of casual sexism. And then the final one was we just uh, elected a first woman Premier of Tasmania, another one of our states. Yes, of course. And she was a, a radical and she was single and the headline was leftist Lara still looking for Mr Right. Uh, of course, any single politician who's male is not similarly probably called out for their singleness. Well, you wouldn't even know mostly. What it must it be like to be at the head of an award whose very existence means that society is doing something wrong? It actually cheers me up a bit because in the past I used to read the newspaper and think, oh, I can't believe they said that. And now I sort of cut it out and put it in the folder and I know I get my own back in a few months' time. That's right. They'll get theirs in the form of an Ernie. Yes. Have you, have you ever met one of the winners of these awards after he has won it? Oh, yes. And occasionally they'll come and ask me for the trophy because the trophies are very elegant pigs on sticks, you know. Are they doing that in some ironic way, kind of acknowledging that they messed up or do you think that they're proud of it? Sometimes they're quite proud of it, particularly the media guys. If they've said something appalling, sometimes they'll come and say, can I have the trophy for a year? And occasionally I relent and go, oh, all right. By the way, do you have like something along the lines of Vegas odds that are kept up all year long over you know, the over-under on who's in the lead, the way we do for the Oscars? Well, the funniest thing that happens is that the women do their own lobbying. And you'll often hear out in the sort of smoking area the women going, 
Uh, I'll vote for your one for media if if you vote for um, Tony Abbott in the political, you know, and they're sort of trading votes. <laughs> it's, it's a very political. <laughs> but in the early days, people always treated it as a bit of a joke. And now it's treated as really serious mm-hmm. and the results are announced in the evening news and then people start complaining that the right quote didn't win. It's exactly <laughs> like the Oscars. <laughs> Dr. Meredith Bergman, you'll have to wait till September to learn the, quote, winners of this year's Ernie Awards. People are competing furiously around the world. <laughs> Sad. All right, and we've nearly reached the final curtain of our first annual Notsker show. Here to close things out is musician Tom Holkenborg, a.k.a. Junkie XL. Mm. He's remixed everyone from Elvis to Justin Timberlake and composed soundtracks for films including Deadpool, the current number one movie in the land. That's right. But most relevant to today's show, the Dutch musician scored Mad Max Fury Road, which did not get an Oscar nomination for Best Score, even though that movie features the most talked about cinematic music of the year, the heavy metal riffs played by a guy standing atop a speeding semi with a flame-throwing guitar. Here's an example. Alas, there's no Oscar category for extreme metal riffage. One day. But as a consolation prize, we invited Junkie XL to compile for us a dinner party soundtrack made of soundtracks. Hi, this is Tom. Uh, More people know me as Junkie XL. So I'm going to play you a soundtrack for this unique dinner party that is made up of tracks from well-known movie scores or not so well-known movie scores. And they're somewhat on the darker side, but at least it's going to lead to some good conversation. And we're going to end with a fun track. Number one is going to be the main theme from Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, starring David Bowie, music by Ryuho Sakamoto. What really appeals to me about this track is that it's very melancholic and it's also very rooted in Japanese music culture. Um, And at the same time, it's very 80s too. Ryoko Sakamoto was part of a band, the Yellow Magic Orchestra. They were using a lot of synthesizers and samplers that were very unique for that time period in the 80s. And it's just a really wonderful track. Very mesmerizing. So my number two for tonight is a track from the score Birdie also a movie that came out in the 80s. And the music was done by Peter Gabriel, and the track is called At Night. It's a movie about two guys. One guy is fascinated by birds, and he goes to fight in Vietnam and loses his mind and... uh, what a dinner party this is. Uh, well, again, I, I love to play music uh, to people that uh, sparks a conversation. And like myself, when I work, I love to get myself in a zone that is not my comfort zone. More interesting music starts to emerge or more interesting subjects to talk about. The 
This music is so incredibly put together using all these different musicians from Africa. The effect that it has on me is almost like a state of trance. You really feel that you're sucked into a world that is not your own. Uh, number three, uh, we're going to brighten things up. It's a track of a movie that had a massive impact on me, which was Saturday Night Fever. And I know it has all these really famous hits on there, but that's not the song I picked. I, I picked the song Open Sesame, a dark funk track by Cool and the Gang. When people ask me what was the first time you realized how powerful music in the movie was, uh, I always say Saturday Night Fever and people laugh. It's a track that I uh, danced to when I was a, a teenager. Oh, the disco scene on the countryside in Holland is nothing like you've ever seen before. <laughs> I lived in this really small city. There are all these small villages around. And then in the middle of all that is a massive warehouse that was turned into a disco. Kids from all these villages would go there. On. on a good Saturday night, there would be 2,000 kids in there. This particular track always stayed with me. Great use of instruments and voices, and uh, it puts a grin on my face. If I would pick a track of my own for a dinner party with absolute guaranteed success, it would be <laughs> the remix that I did in 2002 of Elvis, a little less conversation, a little more action. I came up with this remix for a commercial in 2002 and it featured all the famous soccer stars in there. The commercial came out and before I knew it, it was number one in 28-something countries. <laughs> and I'm afraid in 25 years when I come to um, a wedding party somewhere in the countryside in Holland, people will still play that track. So <laughs> something to look forward to. A dinner party soundtrack from soundtrack composer Tom Holkenborg, a.k.a. Junkie XL. You'll hear his music in a little something called Batman vs. Superman. It comes out in March. And that concludes the Dinner Party Download's first annual Notskers show. Well done. Our award for best producer goes to Jackson Musker. Best associate producer is Nina Potok. Best associate digital producer, Christina Lopez. Carla Javier and Christian Coons tied for best interns. Nice. Bill Lance wins best engineer. And best executive producer is Larissa Anderson. Tune in next week when we speak to our guests, Viola Davis and Alan Cumming. They're both the best, too. Mm -hmm. And best of all, there's you, the best audience. Best appetit.